Hi, everyone, and welcome back to A608 After Hours. I'm Monica Higgins. And I'm Uche Meiji. And today we are joined by Samantha Pratt Asante, who we'll introduce in just a moment. Um, but first, just thinking about this week, Uche, um, this was our first week in the entrepreneurship module of the course. And it's so perfect that we have you here, Samantha, to talk about your own organization that you launched, I guess, prior to HDSC, but then continued while you were here at um, Harvard Graduate School of Education. Um, but this week, I was struck by all these comments around different ways of thinking about demand for a product or service in the public sector, um, whether or not you create or drive demand. And in one case, we talked about using technology to create a city map for transportation in Mexico City, and what a huge problem that was. And in the other case, we talked about um, where there really wasn't a clear problem that the entrepreneurs were trying to solve. And that was creating access to computer science learning in schools. And at the time, people really weren't focused on computer science at all. That was in 2013 because everybody was interested in improving math and literacy and K-12 education in the United States. So while both cases were about technological innovation, in one case, the demand was obvious or more obvious where, and compared to the other one where it really wasn't obvious. So I've been left thinking about how entrepreneurs really think about this idea of demand for solutions to problems that may be visible or invisible to the public and how that context makes a difference as to how entrepreneurial leaders enter that space for change. How about you, Uche? Hmm. I'm thinking something quite similar. Um, again, how entrepreneurs think about their entrepreneurial challenge. Um, so I'm thinking about how one's or the entrepreneur's sources of power influence not only their choice of strategy or, to your point, how they see challenges, but what strategy options they even consider. When discussing sources of power, we've considered personal power, positional power, like they're the founder, so on and so forth, and relational power, the networks that they bring with them. I wonder how one's self-assessment of these sources of power impacts their tendency to act as an agitator, an innovator, or an orchestrator um, of events. And in turn, how that tendency impacts their underlying assumptions about what strategies, strategies may even be tenable. We've always talked about context as king, that you have to respond to your context. But like there is this internal context that each entrepreneur brings. And it's, again, everything that I said, I'm talking about self-assessment, their self-assessment of their sources of power and what their tendency is, and so on and so forth. And then, of course, there's this bit about your strength being your weakness as the context shifts and so on. And so I'm really thinking about where the, where the entrepreneur sits, how they view themselves, how they view their sources of power, and how that influences kind of their, their, view, of, their view of the world, their view of the options, I believe, like I think it was their umwelt, their environment, so to speak. Anyway, I think this conversation with Samantha Pratt-Asante will also help us perhaps dig into this conversation, this line of thinking whether it be where Monica was going with her line of thinking or mine specifically focused on the entrepreneur and their self-assessment, so to speak. So Samantha Pratt-Asante, um, we're seeing each other, I think, for the first time in a year or so. She took my class, I think, two years ago. Amazing entrepreneur. 
is the founder and CEO of Click Engage, an organization whose mission is to help all students feel psychologically safe and supported in every environment. Click Engage achieves this mission by amplifying youth voice, promoting social emotional well-being, and increasing the effectiveness of existing interventions through technology. Samantha has received recognition and support for her work with Click Engage through such connections as the Camelback and Kravis Lab Moonshot Fellowships. Prior to founding Click Engage, Samantha served as a TFA core member and fifth grade teacher in Miami Dade. Samantha, thank you for joining us. Love to hear from you. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really great to to be here and having this conversation today is actually really timely. I just finished up. Um, my time with the AT&T Aspire Accelerator, but I'm actually at Harvard iLab right now in the LLX GEO program. Um, so it's kind of cool to be back more deeply ingrained in the Harvard community again. What is that program again? It's called LLX GEO. It's the alumni program um, for uh, at the Harvard iLab, so equivalent to some of the student programs that are run there. Excellent. Congratulations once again. Absolutely. It's so great to have you here, Samantha. I remember when you guys were pitching Click Engage as part of the Hive pitch competition, which, um, and uh, you did so extraordinarily well, and it's great to see your continued success. So I just wanna open with um, a question to help situate um, our listeners. Can you tell us a little bit more about your work at Click Engage, both how and then why you, did decide, you decided to embark on this entrepreneurial venture, which I know you started before HGSC, but just give us a little bit of the backdrop. Yeah, so um, it's a kind of a lengthy story that I'll try to condense as much as possible. But um, basically, I was, as Uche mentioned earlier, I was a fifth grade teacher in Miami-Dade County. Specifically, I taught fifth grade science in Liberty City. Um, if you know anything about Liberty City, it's actually one of the, um, a very famous project in the United States and it's one of the oldest projects in the Southern U.S. Um, and at one point in time, there was literally a wall built around the projects to separate them. Um, and by them, I mean, majority, m- minority and, um, Haitian immigrants from the rest of the Miami. Whoa. Yeah. Oh and so that's just a lot of context about the community. And that's important because a lot of the systemic issues there have sustained for multi-generations. So when I was in the classroom, um, there was a lot of trauma that my students were bringing into my space um, because of the the absorbent amount of violence in that community. um, And really, like I said, the generational um, ingrainment in in poverty. And I knew all that going in. Um, I also had experiences growing up with lots of different kinds of complex traumas that actually resulted in my own struggles with mental health and adolescence and early adulthood. Um, so I was very familiar with the need to understand what kids were going through and how it can affect their academics. But by nature of being in a school in this kind of community and in a Title I school in general, um, I was strapped for capacity. I often had like 40 kids in my classroom because we couldn't get substitutes. And so it was this idea of like individualized learning and being able to talk to your students one-on-one was just like completely Mm. unrealistic. Um, And what what was often happening was that I was being really reactionary. So I only found out what was happening with kids um, when I had to put out fires, right? Or deal with problems. Um, and then I would hear some of the context that they were experiencing um, because otherwise I didn't have the time, uh, unfortunately. And 
I, after a series of school shoot or not school shootings, there was some school shootings over at the high school that shared a campus with us, but also lots of shootings in the neighborhood, um, which resulted in code reds on our campus. And so after a series of code reds taking place, a lot of them over the course of about six weeks, um, I had gotten, realized how desensitized we had all gotten to this just this normal, right? This quote unquote normal and myself and including the kids, right? In that conversation, they just operated in these spaces so resiliently, but like, if you really reflected, you're like, why is this normal for them? Right. And I remember sitting and talking to my students and just feeling, hearing so many things shared by them when we're sitting like in the dark under our desks, waiting for the code red to lift and realizing like, we can't keep going like this because these kids might be fine right now, but this is going to get to them at some point. And the way it's going to manifest is going to be either going to have detriments in their physical health. It's going to have psychological consequences. A lot of these kids are already struggling academically. Like we can't keep going like this. And I don't know what I can do, but I need to do something. And so that sense of urgency really just aligned um, with the need I was already seeing. And I realized that if I could just find a way to be more proactive, I could at least mitigate some of those problems, some of those experiences kids face outside the classroom in my classroom. Um, yeah. And that's where click engage came in. I, I realized if I could just get kids to report like a very short survey on how they were feeling when they came in, it would give me an indicator on who to target my, my limited resources towards, um, who I could service and support better, how I can adjust my classroom lessons. Um, and we, in title one schools, they love to give you technology and you're forced to use like weird amounts of tech time during the day for things that don't always work. And so I figured if we already have to use technology, why not leverage that to do something that could actually help my kids? Samantha, that's such a powerful story. And I, you know, just from your own early work experience and just, um, just really sets the stage for your work. But I'm also just want to, you know, I just want to make sure sure people understand a little bit more about, yeah. um, you know, the idea and the technology. What is what is yeah. Engage and what does it enable teachers uh, to do in in really addressing that clear need that you personally experienced and you felt. Yeah, like so so as I mentioned, it's it's about being proactive, right? So the way that we do that is we have web-based apps that are there's a teacher portal and student portal and actually an admin portal as well. And the students, when they come into class, usually during that bell ringer time or homeroom time, depending on the school structure, um, students come in and as part of their entrance routine, they do a one-minute survey. It's about five questions. Um, and based on those results, kids are grouped into different color groupings: um, red, yellow, green, blue, purple. Um, that are associated with how they're feeling that day. And then based on those results, the kids are given targeted coping mechanisms that they can return to in the app and use throughout the day. Um, and these are real, real, real world applications, right? Like teaching them breathing exercises, different things like that. Um, and then on the teacher side, the teacher gets all this information in real time. So she can see a class overview, um, warning zone students, high flyers, individual student breakdowns, can record notes for conversations they, that the teacher might have been able to have with a student one-on-one. Um, that we also have insight dashboards where teachers can see patterns and trends over time. So you can start to identify things like 
maybe Johnny's coming in every Tuesday um, from third period and he's always a red. So what's happening on Tuesdays in second period that's leading to these behaviors, right? So being able to really, like I said, be proactive. Um, and then the administrator view is really the piece that we call, we call being connected to access. Um, so it allows administrators, including principals and counselors, to be able to have, see a school-wide wellness report um, and see classrooms that might need additional support staff, additional services, um, and gives principals and administrators um, indications on what things can be done in the school environment based on the context of that day. Wow, that sounds like such a powerful uh, use of technology to address a, you know, a real challenge or challenges um, at multiple levels too, right? With the teachers as well as the administrators and certainly the kids giving them actual strategies throughout the day. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what surprised you about the work so far that you've been engaged in? Yeah, um, that's so many things, right? <laughs> so I think, um, I think the thing that was most surprising was how many people, how people can resonate with the problem and understand and see it, but still have a hard time committing to solutions. Um, and this, that's for, that's true for everyone. I would say investors, advisors, our users, customers, the everyone across the board, there's no one I've ever spoken to that was like, this doesn't sound like a real problem, right? There's, but um, what we have seen is that there's so, there's sometimes there's hesitance to like figure out I don't know if it's because of the emotional piece, right? Or if we're talking, it's because we're quantifying qualitative data or if it's because it's something right. not the norm in our society in a lot of ways. Um, people sometimes have this hard leap of how are you going to get people to use this or be involved or how, why would kids want to use this? And it's, to me, it's so obvious. Like why wouldn't a kid want to feel heard, right? And we've seen that in our pilots and it's mm. been demonstrated, but it's funny that you see that bias emerge in mm -hmm. um, all these stakeholders in children's lives just have this like unfair bias that kids don't want to talk about their feelings. And it's, I think that was probably the most surprising. Wow. Um, yeah, by far. <laughs> wow. And wait, did you say you started off and was it, yeah, where did you start? Was it middle school? Where have you um, So Yeah, so our target pop our target population is upper elementary through middle school, um, yeah. primarily because I built it with the context of my students in mind. So my fifth graders was who I was always thinking about. So that's the age range. Okay. Okay. Thanks. So um, tying this back to you, I'd love to ask you um, how you think about um, your own identity and your own background. You talked a little bit about your professional experience, but when you think about entering the work, um, and your background and your own experiences, how does that link to your, you know, how you approach your work each and every day? Yeah. So, I mean, my personal connection to the problem definitely, definitely inspires my passion in the work. Um, same with my, my professional experience. But I think as I think about the nuanced elements of my identity, it definitely influences how I operate as a leader. So I was a non-tech founder of a tech company with essentially at the time of starting no business background. Um, I have, I'm now a parentpreneur. Um, I also am a woman and I'm a black woman, right? So I'm so many things um, and have so many of these different intersections that are often in entrepreneurial spaces seen as deficits. Um, 
and you know that like everyone I think knows this by this point because you see so many ads from these different organizations that are like trying to fund more minorities and more women and it just quite like pinpoints the pain point for us, right? Um, and so operating essentially with these quote unquote deficits, which I don't feel are are deficits in any way. I feel like they've they've given me a really diverse perspective and an ability to look at the work from a larger scope and build a really strong and diverse team. So I see them as positives, but because other people in other spaces might view them as deficits, it's it can be exhausting, right? I think that as a leader, I have to learn to conserve my energy. That's a huge piece of being an entrepreneur is knowing where to channel energies. And the problem is when I enter spaces and I have to operate around other people's biases. So I enter a space and I'm constantly calculating, okay, is this person going to perceive the thing that I'm saying? Because I just realized I'm the only black person in this room as this thing. And just you're constantly micromanaging your own thoughts when you go into these spaces. And that's exhausting in and of itself. So it can make it hard to preserve your energy for the work. Um, All that to say that I think that these, like I said, I see so many positive ways in which my team and company have been built because of my identity. But as a leader, it's made me also more strategic because I do have to figure out how to better conserve my energies. I do have to be more calculating when I'm talking to people um, in ways that other folks really don't always have to be. Thank you. Wow. Thank you for um, leaning into that, Samantha, really talking about how your identity, because earlier on, I was talking about kind of your, a leader self-assessment about their power, sources of power, and so on and so forth. But you're kind of thinking about what's my sources of power the way I see it, but what's the way somebody else may see it? And then thinking about, okay, it's my assessment of how they might see it. And that, all that cognitive load, it is amazing. And then to your point, I don't want to say zero sum because you then think about how that impacts your team. Mm -hmm. But to your point, that actually is that cognitive load does perhaps impact how much space you have to do other things that other people whose um, identities may be perhaps more traditional or they just don't see themselves, again, as um, needing to do some of this extra work. And then how, and then I'm thinking about like how somebody who's maybe not as strategic or as where as you, who may also be perceived similarly as you, may actually be basically swimming in this water without realizing that it's drowning them, as we've talked about. So thank you for this. This is powerful. And you give an example of how to really be explicit and aware of this context and lean into it. And I'm also thinking, maybe even backing up into your process, a lot of what we've talked about this week the entrepreneurial process is the kind of the role of, you know, you talked about your pilots, but even before the pilots, probably like testing out specific ideas based on your perceived risks, assumptions you may have, and then creating these hypotheses and testing out specific things. And I'm sure even that process is probably intersects with your identity and like, again, like, yeah. So if you can talk a little bit about how you went about testing and maybe moving towards an initial pilot. Yeah. So we, so I've been, I always say we've been really scrappy since the beginning. So we, okay. I clicking <laughs> while I was in my uh, third year of my, or third year teaching. Yeah. So um, 
I did an incubator basically right after I had decided I had to build something to, to support my kids. Um, that January, I did an incubator that like kind of walked me through how to do these tests and how to like the, like the basics of business 101. Because as I mentioned, I had no business background, right? So like what an MVP is, how to do customer tests, different things like that. Um, and I actually, since I was still teaching, um, started kind of experimenting with my, my um, fourth grade homeroom. Um, and with with the willingness of the students, of course. Um, but basically what I did is I like started using, um, essentially paper prototypes in a way. So we, I had, um, charts around the classroom. We talked about lots of different things, some, some similar strategies that teachers already use in that, like they have students using paper-based emoji circling to say how they're feeling or putting things on the board in like a, um, a grid or a chart and seeing what pieces of those things work. And then noting the pieces that don't, which I already knew the reason those things don't really work is because as the teacher, you don't actually have time to process that information when you need to. So it doesn't matter if you look at it two hours later where your students fell or or feeling in class that day because their moods are now different because it's two hours later. Um, And so I did a lot of that early paper prototyping and then I moved to like Google Forms. And I just started having my kids start to complete the surveys and Google Forms. And that was really great. We got to, I got to sort out how many questions there should be, how long it can realistically take without disrupting class time, how um, the lang- getting the language right. Like, so if I'm working with fourth graders, that's on the younger end of our, of our students. So what words were too hard for them to understand and take them out, right? Like that's, mm-hmm. I did a lot of that work with the kids directly um, and took their critical feedback. I, I gave them little surveys to like rate, um, click engage and like how they felt about what we were doing. And they were such great partners in the work and really gave me a lot of good insights into where we could go. Um, yeah. So in terms of testing, I just did it. Like I just knew i I found some, I carved out some time. I just thought of some things that I wanted to explore. I, like you said, I checked assumptions. So that's why we had to do some of that paper-based stuff for things I already knew wouldn't work was -hmm. because I needed to make sure that that was true. Right. And so I tested those assumptions first and then tested out my idea, um, and then started to build something a little bit more substantial. Um, and of course that's still that kind of direct user feedback and, and quick research cycles are still really very much a part of the work that we do every day. So we very rarely build a feature without talking to students or teachers about it. Um, It's almost always built on things that were suggested by teaching staff during onboarding trainings or something where it was, um, it came out that it needed to be tweaked, right? So we're very much user focused Mm -hmm. and that mindset and experimentality was very, very important to, to where we are now. Brilliant. Thank you. So you've talked a lot about, so this testing process, this is the idea, and this is about the end user who's the student. Earlier on, when you talked about what Click Engage does, it includes teachers, it includes school administration. And so how did you expand from this end user to thinking about like, who else is in this kind of decision-making unit? Who are these, the customers or the te- like, how do you think about the teachers versus administrators? Like who's paying? Like, how did you move up that stack? And yeah. Yeah. So obviously our end users aren't who are paying, right? We don't charge kids. So, so wait, that wait, like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and as a teacher, I know that teachers don't like paying for stuff either. And we will find ways around things, whether that mean, ha- means having 10 different emails to sign up for free trials mm-hmm. or like all of those things. So I also knew that 
Um, selling direct to teachers though was a possibility, wasn't really the way we wanted to go. So I knew just from, like I said, my direct background experience that the way we should approach it is by selling to administrators. Um, and then I checked that again with some, with interviews and, and, um, different customer surveys to make sure that was the right path forward. Um, but initially we did actually charge teachers and then we actually took that away during COVID. Um, because in terms of mission, I really, for us, it's about serving the kids. And so we knew that if teachers were inundated with so many different pieces of tech being thrown at them um, during that COVID period, something that was going to cost them money was going to be an immediate, immediately mm-hmm. check off the list. And we knew it was important for kids to still have this space at that time. So mm-hmm. we stopped charging teachers during that time. And it really honestly hasn't hurt our overall business model. And so we've actually decided to keep it so that the teacher classroom it, um, level a license is actually still going to be free. Um, because what we find is that when we talk about selling to our customers, it's always, it's not just the value of, of serving kids. Like that's great, but like at an administrator mindset, they need to have, or at that level, they need to see connections to their school level goals as well. And mm-hmm. so even though it, it doesn't, the reason it doesn't hurt us that we give away the license to free to teachers is because administrators still need to see this data in a different form. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had, we did have one school attempt to actually um, sign up like multiple teachers for free trials. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they ended up doing was um, the administrator still called us for a license for a contract because mm-hmm. She wanted to see this data in aggregate, mm-hmm. right? So we know there's more value there. And that's how we approach our customers is always thinking about how it's valuable to that specific layer of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And I'm just like, I really like your strategic way of thinking and talking about it. So if I could, I, can I follow up a little bit more? Yeah. So we started with, this is your idea. This is how you fleshed out and tested it out. Now we also talked about how you're thinking about who the customer is and so on and so forth. Did you like target a specific like beachhead market when you started like specific set of people, like you said you were in Miami date, or did you just try to see who would be interested within the middle school? Okay. You're smiling. So there must be a story there. <laughs> um, a little of both, I guess. So, um, <laughs> I, I talked to who I knew first, right? So mm-hmm. that definitely put me in the Miami space. Um, we did do, we have done early pilots with Teach for America in Miami. We actually have a national partnership with Teach for mm-hmm. America. But the, it, it's kind of just been like, who who's interested, right? So the way that we went into, op- I went into operation is I really took a, like a ground up approach to everything from the, uh, within the work, but also within fundraising. So mm-hmm. I, got, did a lot of grant fund, the grant competitions, different things like that, which gave us a lot of early press. So we actually got a lot of inbound leads from like all over. Um, Mm -hmm. and so it kind of was just like, let's test the market by seeing what sticks like initially. Um, and honestly, it wasn't until very recently that we actually shifted to be like more focused in how we're, how we do our Mm go-to-market strategies and, um, who we approach. But yeah, early on, like the reality is you need to prove that this can make money, right? Like mm-hmm. if you, that's what you, you have to make sure it's a sustainable organization. Yeah. And so you, at the, at the very beginning, you, te- you're testing, you're trying to see, I might, I thought, right. Schools and teachers were the best target, but mm-hmm. I've also seen that nonprofits really like using our, our tools as well, which that partnership. Ah. Is America. Mm-hmm. 
Um, we've seen a lot of crossover into summer programs, after school programs, um, other serving organizations. We also are looking at the healthcare sector now too. Um, all these are things that weren't even in my in my scope at the beginning. Um, but by just broadening it up and being flexible in the market um, early on, I've been able to see those different potential verticals. Uh, now, in terms of driving revenue and sales, it is important to focus in. But I, if I hadn't done that early, like kind of just throw it at the wall and see what sticks, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have known where we can go later. No, that's great. And I'm hearing like, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm hearing a bunch of things that we've talked about this week in class. So you're, it sounds like early on your network, your um, relational power was super important. So that's something I'm hearing. And to lean into that very early and all the way through your process. I remember we were talking about, about that with Hattie Partovi from Code.org and how he relied on his networks. But I'm also hearing you talk about, like, and we talk about this again, marketing. It, the importance of marketing, a lot of times, like, um, we're talking about cultures of different sectors. And like you mentioned, testing and trying things out. And that was something we were having a conversation about when we were talking about Lab CDMX in um, Mexico. And like, is there a cultural push against maybe testing or experimentation in, in social sector or um, so on and so forth? And that's something you're willing to do. And it's because you want, you're doing it for the best for the kids and you're doing it with the kids too. You said, not just on them. Um, and yeah, I found that super important and it resonates a lot. So I think there's a lot that our students can, from the clarity of thinking to just the willingness to just get in there and hustle. Um, and then to like, even right now, you're already stepping back and saying, okay, now we need to think about how can we focus as we're going forward in terms of scale. So there's a lot that I'm pulling off from this conversation. So thank you so much. Monica, what are you thinking? Um, I mean, this has been fantastic. I mean, Samantha, you don't even know this, but we were talking about MVP this week, (laughs) literally minimal viable products and experimentation. And here you are. That's literally what you're doing over and over and over again. I love your openness to learning. I mean, I think sometimes people think about entrepreneurship, you need to sit back and, you know, go to a quiet place and, you know, figure (laughs) out exactly what the plan is. And then you have your goals and your metrics and it just kind of, you follow that path that you designed and, your example of your openness, you even use the word scrappiness. Of course, you're going to be scrappy in the beginning. Of course, you're going to use a convenient sample and, you know, just trying out from the beginning, you know, where to get feedback so you can build out. Um, it's just wonderful to hear. I also um, take away an addition your comments around who you are entering this space. I was really struck by your comments about how oftentimes you face people who think about some of your your own identity as actually being deficits and how this is just absolutely not the case and you need to do work in these settings to um, deal with those biases that people have. And I so appreciated you telling us that it's exhausting. It's exhausting enough being an entrepreneur, but it's exhausting thinking about how other people are thinking about you in that space and the legitimacy and the credibility that you need to build. And you use the words, um, I need to be more strategic. I need to be um, calculating. And I would also add to that, you, you need to be intentional. And I think you've given 
so many different pieces of so many different examples of how you've been intentional along the way and still stayed very true to your mission and your passion and the why of the work. So um, this is just terrific. I really, really enjoyed having you with us. So thank you. Yeah, of course. And if I just add one more thing, I think something that I've learned through through this work has been, um, even with like entering those spaces, as I mentioned, the right people will partner, you'll partner with the right people. Like don't work with people who you've got to do that kind of um, mental gymnastics with, right? Make sure that you're in, the right people will get behind the work, especially if we're talking about social ventures. Um, and like a good testament to that was I was actually, I started our pre-seed fundraise right before I went on maternity leave a few months ago. And um, Zoom world, you can't, you couldn't tell I was nine months pregnant, right? If, um, and when I was talking to these investors and then um, at the end of the conversation, it went really, really well. And I was talking to a group of investors and at the end of the conversation, they were like, well, let's set up a time to talk soon. And I was like, yeah, let's pause that for about two months and then we can re reconvene. Um, and they were, and then I stood up and like everyone was super shocked. But what was really great about that is like one, I, I'm very, like I said, very intentional. So I know who I want to work with. And if that was going to be a problem, then I didn't want those conversations anyway. Anyway. Um, but two, at the end of that conversation, it really made them, they were so excited um, for me and even more excited about the work that I was doing that they ended up being a great love it. Yeah. Yeah, me love too. It. That's fantastic. <laughs> and congratulations on all your success. So um, do you mind if we end with some fun questions? Yeah. Okay. Um, so Uche and I like to ask questions around dessert. Do you have a favorite dessert? Yes, I love cheesecake. Cheesecake. Yes. What kind of cheesecake? I actually like, I like strawberry cheesecake. So something with a little bit of food on it. Yeah. I don't know that I've So wait, ever, so regular cheesecake with strawberries it. on top or strawberry? I like it with the strawberries on top. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm. Delicious. Mm. I'm getting hungry. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Easily distracted. So here's a slightly different question. What's one thing you're grateful for right now? Um, it's a little cheesy, but definitely my, my husband, um, I love awesome. that. yeah, mm -hmm. he's working from home right now too. And as I mentioned, we just, we have a newborn. So, um, it's been really great for us to kind of tag team, um, around this together so that I can still give work a hundred percent. That's awesome. Real partner. Mm -hmm. And finally, what's one thing you wish somebody had told you about life after Harvard Graduate School of Education. Ooh, um, it's, there's not, it's not like a guarantee. There's no guaranteed path forward. Um, by nature of being in the ed school, you, there's a ton, you learn that there's so many opportunities and different pathways, um, which actually then makes it more complicated in choosing which direction to go in. Like I studied mm -hmm. education policy um, and I'm running a tech company. So like, there's just, there's no guaranteed way forward, um, but it does show you that there's always so many intersections that you really don't have to commit to a career pathway as much as mm -hmm. a personal mission. Brilliant. That's terrific. This has been an awesome conversation, Samantha. So thank you so much for taking the time. And I think so many students and others beyond our students can learn a lot from your strategy, your clarity, and your passion. Yeah, thank Absolutely. you for having me. Thank you, Samantha, so much. <laughs>
If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to hear other conversations where Monica and I interview leaders in the social sector, you can find these conversations at bit.ly forward slash 8608 after hours. That's bit.ly forward slash 8608 after hours.